Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Make It Count. So turning your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 12, as Dr. Newfeld brings us part one of his message, Not Ashamed. Have you ever wondered what people do with valuable things? I mean, perhaps you'd like to have something valuable, or perhaps as you listen to my voice, you've got something valuable. But what would you do if you owned a painting that was considered priceless? What would you do with that? Would you lock it in a vault? Would you hang it up on the wall of your house? How would you prevent, you know, the real threat of art thieves breaking in and stealing your painting? Or what if you had a rare, vintage, expensive automobile? I mean, what would you do with that? You know, as you might know, some automobiles, rare vintage, they're worth many millions of dollars. What would you do if you had one of those? I mean, would you drive it to work? Take a chance on the busy city streets? I mean, what if you had an accident? Perhaps you'd park it in a safe garage, but what use is that? Would you park it in a supermarket parking lot where someone with an old beater would park right next to you and open their door, put a nice ding in your little door? I mean, would you lend it out to friends? I mean, what would you do with something that valuable? You know, some people, knowing how precious it is, never let it get out of their sight, and it never does what it was designed to do. Or what would you do if you became rich and suddenly had a great deal of money? I mean, would you go on a massive spending spree? Or would you immediately begin to worry about investments so that you don't lose it? You know, I recently read one philosophy that said, get all you can, then can all you get, and then finally sit on the can. I mean, certainly for some, that's exactly what they do. You know, what is precious becomes the burden in their lives. Well, I'm not going to talk about what you should do with rare cars or rare art pieces or valuable jewelry or, you know, a boatload of cash. I want to talk about something much more valuable than that. Of all the valuable things in this world, none is more valuable than the gospel. The gospel is the good news about Jesus. I mean, think about it. For in the gospel, in Romans 1.16, there is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Salvation from sin, Satan, death, judgment, and from an eternity in hell. It's all there in the gospel, given that we in this life already live in the valley of the shadow of death. We get salvation from what is menacingly looming over us right now. Well, nothing can be of greater value than that. And Jesus put it this way in Matthew 16.26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I mean, only the absolute fool would forfeit his soul. You know, I know people are doing that daily, but if you think about it, that's absolutely stunning. There is nothing even remotely more valuable than the gospel and what it offers. But here's the question I want us to consider, and maybe you've never considered it. What do you do with the gospel? You know, the thing of greatest value has been given to you. So what do you do now? No, no, I do get it. Of course, we are to believe it. We are also to inherit it. You know, what more can we possibly say apart from that? But there is more that God calls us to do with it. Yes, for with our salvation also comes our calling. The gospel calls us to believe it, and then it calls us to proclaim it. And we've begun a new series in the book of 2 Timothy, and we've begun by making the observation that this is the book that expresses the closing words of a man who had given his life for the gospel. For Paul, the calling to know Christ, the calling to make Christ known, those two things, well, they belong together. And that was true from the very outset of his life in Christ. 
You might remember that God told a man named Ananias, the one who had been appointed by God to lay hands on Saul to take away his blindness. And here I'm reading Acts 9, 15 to 16. But the Lord said to him, that is to Ananias, go for he, Paul, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, the question that might then be asked, well, if that's true of Paul, is it also true of us? You know, not that we will have his kind of a mission, but will we all have a mission? And here's a little truth that we need to hold on to. You will never require courage or sacrifice or to exercise great faith if you have no assignment from God. Indeed, you'll be like the rich man who hides his painting in the vault, not knowing what to do with it. You know, in this series on 2 Timothy, I have as a goal, when we understand this book that we, like Paul, will be prepared to risk everything that we have for the cause of Christ. Be prepared to forfeit your life for the gospel and the ministry that Christ has given you. Now, I can't tell you what your unique calling is, but I can tell you that, like Paul, we all have been called to know Christ and the power of his gospel and be willing to forsake everything to live within our calling for Christ. Remember, we're studying the book of 2 Timothy, and 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter written shortly before his execution, and this book contains a radical challenge. It's a challenge the North American church, I fear, has stopped hearing years ago. You know, there was a time when people regularly heard sermons like, you know, live the crucified life. You know, leave everything for the cause of Christ. But many of us have forgotten that. We've become soft and comfortable, and we've loved pleasure. And we think any discomfort can't be from God. There are even preachers, popular preachers today, who teach you that you can use your faith to get what you want, and they mean by that riches and a healthy self-esteem and even fame. They even promise that you will fulfill your purpose in life only they don't define that purpose in terms of the gospel. They don't urge you to reach the people around you for Christ. Rather, they urge you that you can have all that you want, however you define that for yourself. I wonder if we've forgotten one of the old hymns. Do you remember that old hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? It was written by Isaac Watts. The hymn contains verses that ask a profound question. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Great questions, don't you think? Now, let's get to 2 Timothy. In the first several verses of the book, we've noticed that Paul was challenging his young disciple, Timothy, to carry on in his teaching and preaching of the gospel not to be afraid of a new brutal persecution that had now become an official policy in Rome. And more so, Paul is inviting Timothy to come to Rome to see him. Come to the lion's den, he says. And that might seem, you know, scary and unwise and even unsafe. But Timothy is to rely on the Holy Spirit to be especially bold. Since the Holy Spirit is not the spirit of fear, Timothy is to rely on him. Today, we're going to get very practical with this. What are we to do with the gospel? You know, in our culture and in our time, you know, if we've been given something that's profoundly valuable, I mean, do we simply park it in the garage so no scratches will get on it? I mean, is that what the gospel is for? So let's read now 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 12. 
Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now, from this passage, I want us to be able to articulate a number of things that what we should do with the gospel. Here's the first of them. And this first thing is the main theme of this entire passage. So first of all, never, never be ashamed of the gospel. Look again at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, it is, of course, possible to believe in the gospel and then to be ashamed of the gospel. You know, by ashamed, Paul means that a person can become intimidated by outside pressure so that they might not want to publicly be associated with the gospel, go underground, that kind of a thing. Now, this idea of shame about the testimony of our Lord is roughly equivalent to being ashamed of Jesus himself because the testimony of our Lord really is the testimony of his words, his works, his deeds, and his death on the cross. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Now, you might say, of course, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. But what we need to do is explore that concept thoroughly. What exactly did Paul mean when he told Timothy not to be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord and not to be ashamed of Paul? When Timothy thought about what Paul said, did he know exactly what to do? I think he did. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Newfeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video with Dr. John, but also learn more about our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. It is possible when Paul tells Timothy not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord that he means that the idea of a crucified Lord was considered either impossible in the ancient world or even a sign of weakness, and to some, it was mockery. There has been found an ancient 2,000-year bit of graffiti in Rome on what was then the wall of a school for training imperial pages. 
You know, on this bit of graffiti is a man standing with arms outstretched in worship towards a man hanging on the cross. And so, clearly, this picture is meant to portray the activity of a Christian in the ancient world. But what makes this drawing unique is that the man hanging on the cross has a donkey's head. And underneath that drawing is an inscription. It says, Agamemnos worships his God. Clearly now, Agamemnos was a Christian enrolled in the school of pages, and he had been open about his faith, and he was faithfully sharing Jesus and the gospel with everyone who would listen. But the person drawing that bit of graffiti thought that a crucified Lord was a donkey, and so he let everyone know in that bit of graffiti on the wall. It was mockery of Agamemnos' Christian faith. And the idea in the ancient Roman world of a crucified Savior, it often inspired laughter and ridicule. And so the natural tendency might have been for people to draw back and say less and become quiet. So was Paul concerned that Timothy might give in to that kind of an attitude? Well, for many Christians today, shame does express itself in our silence. You know, in that way, we go about our lives with no public expression of our faith in Christ anywhere. And some of us are so ashamed of Christ that we're not even going to bow our heads in public in a restaurant when we pray before a meal. Let's say it is a restaurant or a, you know, company dinner party or a neighborhood gathering. Well, it seems, well, out of place. We'll do it at home, but not in public, not with colleagues watching, so we're ashamed. You know, some of us have worked with colleagues for years, and they don't even know that you're a follower of Jesus or that you actually believe in the Christ. You know, the thing you need to do with the gospel is that you need to become intensely proud of it. You don't back down from any opportunity, not only to tell people that you're a Christian, but to to demonstrate your faith in public and more so to share it whenever the opportunity arises. Never, never be ashamed of the gospel. Now, for Paul, that becomes intensely practical. Remember, he's in prison at a time when Christians were being rounded up and many have been executed. So that's a great deal worse than hearing the, you know, the snickers and putting up with the occasional insult. Paul knows that being proud of Christ is a matter of life and death. So he says to Timothy, a part of showing that you're not ashamed is your willingness to publicly identify with me. Don't be ashamed of me and the treatment I'm receiving here in this prison. And please notice how Paul puts this. He does not call himself Rome's prisoner, but he believes he's Christ's prisoner. I mean, so confident is he in the power and the sovereignty of Christ that he believes that the only reason he's in prison at this very moment is because Christ, in his infinite wisdom, believed that for his purposes and Paul's long-term good, this was the best for Paul and the glory of God. You know, and through this, Timothy is given this amazing opportunity afforded by Christ to stand up and be identified with Paul. And that, I think, is exactly what Paul means, not just ridicule. But in each and every situation, don't be ashamed of Christ. Identify at each opportunity, loudly and proudly, with the Christ who was crucified for you. And the application for us is so obvious. When people mock church people, make fun of, you know, Christians, I mean, we might not see this as shame for the gospel, but it can be. If you stand with the gospel, you'll stand with the people who are called by the gospel, no matter what the price. So how do we get there? Well, in order to answer how we become proud of the gospel, let's look at the last half of verse 8. He says, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. See, at those times when we might feel tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, 
you know, because we feel intimidated, we, we simply learn to rely on the power of God. And so practically, how do we do that? Well, I think it becomes a matter of being confident in God's power in our lives. I mean, perhaps you might begin as follows. Simply tell God, say, I'm afraid of persecution. I'm afraid of intimidation. And I'm afraid of peer pressure. And then say, I'm going to rely on your power. I'm going to remember that the Holy Spirit is not a spirit of fear. And so in those moments when I'm afraid to, you know, pray over a meal or when I'm afraid to pray for a colleague in front of them or when I'm afraid to tell someone what Christ has done for me or when I'm afraid to explain what it is that I believe that Jesus, by his death on the cross, has forgiven my sins. I mean, in those moments when I'm paralyzed and afraid to open my mouth, would you, Holy Spirit, remind me of your power? So that's lesson number one. You know what to do with the gospel? You need to become intensely proud of the gospel. That's a place to start. Well, what else? There's a lesson number two here. Since you're committed to being proud of the gospel, you must then be equally committed to being able to articulate the gospel. See, one of the great tragedies of our day is that as you know, the North American church is becoming less familiar with the Bible, many Christians are at the place where they can no longer articulate what the gospel is all about. I've even sat with potential pastors. I've interviewed them and asked them, what is the gospel? And neither in their training, either in Bible college or in seminary, nor in their teaching, have they ever articulated the gospel. I mean, the reality is that if this is true of pastors, how much more true is it of those who sit under them? We now have people who come to church, some of them all their lives, and don't understand the most basic and pressing question. And that is, What's the good news about Jesus? So you look again at verses 9 and 10. It speaks of the one who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I mean, those two verses really are a mouthful, but let's, at the very least today, start at the beginning of what the gospel is all about. It is about the Jesus who saved us. I mean, that's what we find in the beginning of verse 9. It's all about salvation. So then, what is the reason Jesus came? And the answer, to save sinners. The message of the gospel is that Jesus' first work, his primary work, is to save people from their sins bring them forgiveness, and reconcile them to God so that they will not be subject to damnation at the final judgment. Now, the gospel is not about environmentalism, even though Christians should be concerned about that. And, you know, we can develop a theology of creation that takes into account the care of the world in which we live. That's not the gospel. And it's not about social justice, even though we know it's a theme in the Bible and it concerns believers. The gospel is not that you can learn better morals, even though morals do concern us. The central message is you're a sinner and you're subject to judgment and eternal punishment awaits you. But Jesus has come so that you might be saved. And if you miss that, you can't begin to articulate the gospel. I've been in churches where I've witnessed baptisms, where the testimony sounded anything like the testimony of the gospel. The person said, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. I wandered away from my faith. I got involved in, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and I realized my life was going nowhere. So I asked God to come back into my life. And I listen to that, and I think, you've got to be kidding. 
Is that all you've got to say? And so you want to talk about being ashamed of the gospel. You know, I'm talking about those who think they're Christians because they're trying to live as God wants them to. They say, I'm going to church. I'm volunteering at the food bank. I'm involved in helping the youth ministry in my local church. I'm involved. And what's lacking is a sin consciousness or a sin awareness. What's missing is a sense of terror of a holy God and of the righteousness and the judgment that is to come. What's missing is what Luke describes in Acts 24. And Paul is in prison. He's been given the opportunity to share the gospel with Felix, who's the governor of Judea. In Acts 24, verse 25, it says that after Paul had reasoned with him about the gospel, Governor Felix became alarmed. Yeah, alarmed. To say that we're not ashamed of the gospel presupposes that we know the gospel. Christ has come to save us from our sins and the judgment to come by his death on the cross. And here's a little insight. The reason why the gospel is sometimes absent from the church is more than simply ignorance. It's because at times the church itself has become ashamed of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, these things must not be. Never be ashamed of the gospel, for that's what you do with the gospel. You proclaim it loudly. Thanks, John. John, can I ask you, what do you think is the key to the church being gospel-centered, actually gospel proclaimers? Well, always the place to begin when we ask a question like that is, are we familiar with the gospel? And, and, you know, at the risk of just being repetitious, but I don't think I can be repetitious enough. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was crucified and paid the cost of our sins, and therefore our sins have been placed onto him, and that he was raised from the dead, and so that we also know that we will be raised with him. We have been granted eternal life through what Christ has accomplished for us, also that he has given us a new heart. So everything ought to center on the cross and on the resurrection. So we can't be gospel-centered unless we're, you know, gospel-saturated. And then we need to, you know, speak the gospel to ourselves. I continue to remind ourselves that even though we're walking through difficult times, that's not the end of the matter for our lives are hid in Christ. So these are the things that we must be in order to be gospel-centered people. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Make It Count, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage you spoke about that day. And every time, I see it through different eyes. What a great way to use the time we've been given. With minds transformed by the washing of God's Word, we're given different eyes and God's own heart to see the world we live in. If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, 
visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.